All right, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome. Uh, thank you for joining us today. My name's Maureen Conway. I'm Vice President for Policy Programs here at the Aspen Institute and Executive Director of the Economic Opportunities Program. And I am really delighted to welcome you all to what is our first, uh, what I'll call, regular event in our Opportunity America uh, conversation series. Uh, we formally launched it last month with sort of a, a whole afternoon of programming. Um, and today is really the kind of the first day in, the, in the, uh, what will be an ongoing conversation series. Um, and the purpose really of this series is, is really to talk about um, what I will call a crisis of opportunity in, in the United States today. Really, there are just far too many people who are working hard, um, either working in a job or starting a business or doing a combination of, of many of them, um, and feeling like they're just not making it, right? So we really do have um, a crisis of opportunity, looks different in different places, um, and we also know that, you know, sort of race, ethnicity, gender, and place uh, play an outsized role in how people are experiencing uh, this crisis of opportunity. Uh, so our purpose is to really talk about this, but also to lift up strategies for improving access uh, to high-quality economic opportunities and to discuss ideas for, ge for generally building a ro robust e economy that will really work for all. Um, at the Economic Opportunities Program, we explore a wide range of strategies that contribute to closing the opportunity gap. Uh, we look at ideas for supporting entrepreneurship and business ownership, uh, 
for improving the quality of jobs available to lower-income workers, uh, strategies that can uh, connect workers to opportunity to learn and to grow in their careers, um, and a variety of other, other work to really connect people to opportunity. Uh, we see how these strategies play out and how they are shaped by local contexts, by public policy, local institutions, business cultures, and more. Um, and our work often brings us to communities that are on the unfortunate side of today's economic divides. So we really need to take seriously questions not only of sort of the standard economic production uh, numbers that we often follow and market efficiency, but also questions of economic distribution and economic inclusion. Our inattention to the latter questions has really left both our economy and society diminished. Um, so today we struggle with an economy that is by many measures successful, but yet still leaves many feeling left out. Uh, one thing that recently struck me was this um, survey report that Gallup uh, released noting that less than half of working people in the U.S. report that they are in good jobs. Um, and in particular, they noted that the connection between how people thought about the quality of their jobs and how people thought about the quality of their lives. Um, and, I, and I think about that because I think it's an important reminder that these economic numbers have human consequences and really are important to, to how we live. Um, and so that brings me to <laughs> why I so appreciate uh, the, the book that is at the center of today's conversation. Uh, so the book, in, if you didn't see it, uh, The Making of a Democratic Economy, Building Prosperity for the Many, Not Just the Few. It is on sale just out there. Uh, I recommend it. Uh, the book starts with putting really putting people at the center of, and service of societal values as the purpose of our economy. And then it explores what kind of economic system would move towards greater fulfillment of our human aspirations. Uh, too often we forget that the economy is a human system and a successful economy is not an end in itself, but rather a means toward uh, broader goals. Uh, so today we keep that purpose in mind, and today we are uh, thrilled to have Marjorie Kelly here as uh, one of the authors of this book. Um, so we're going to start with um, framing remarks from, from Marjorie, uh, talking, uh, giving a little overview of the book and um, how she came to write it. Uh, and then we'll move into a panel discussion, uh, which really is terrific because it gives us the opportunity uh, with two people who've been uh, sort of have long experience working here in the DC metro area to really ground our, our conversation in, in the place where we are. Uh, so that's a really excellent opportunity. Um, I invite everybody to, while we're having this conversation, join in our online conversation through Twitter using our hashtag TalkOpportunity. Um, but if you are in the room, we are live streaming, so please do silence your phones. Um, I also want to thank uh, our, our supporters for this uh, conversation series. We couldn't do it without their support and their partnership. Uh, many thanks to uh, Walmart.org, the Ford Foundation, and Prudential Financial um, for their longstanding support of the series. Um, so, and I now am going to uh, turn the podium over to, to Marjorie to start things off. Um, and I'm not going to do long introductions of our speakers. Uh, you have bios 
uh, in your materials, and I do encourage you to look at them. They all are um, terrific and amazing people. Um, but what I do want to say about Marjorie is, is not only is she incredibly accomplished in all the ways that her bio describes, but she's also uh, a longstanding friend of the Institute. Uh, she's not only, uh, she and the Democracy Collaborative not only partner with us at the Economic Opportunities Program, they also work with our colleagues uh, Janet Topolsky at the Community Strategies Group and Judy Samuelson at the Business and Society Program. Um, so we're really thrilled to have Marjorie here, um, and I welcome you. Well, thanks. Thanks, Maureen. And thanks to all of you for coming out on this cold day. Oh, my goodness. I came in from Boston, and I think we've got, I must have brought the weather with me. I'm sorry about that. Um, yeah, it's exciting to be here and uh, to talk about making of a democratic economy. If I could sum it up in a phrase, uh, what we're trying to do with this book, my co-author Ted Howard and I, I would say what we need is here. And, and we don't hear that a lot. I mean, I think there's a lot of confusion, there's a lot of pain and you know, sort of chaos, I think, in how we think about our economy and our world today, <clears throat> but quietly growing all over. And um, you know, the work of the Aspen Institute is doing this. We travel around uh, the country and visit places that are growing a democratic economy. We have some um, wonderful people here today uh, from Wakeff from Fairfax County, uh, building community wealth. So there are brilliant people all over, and including, I'm sure, many in this room, building what it is that we need. Uh, a new kind of economy is taking shape. I've been covering it for a couple of decades as a journalist, and I would say it really amounts to a new paradigm. You know, we have this idea that our economy is either corporate capitalism or state socialism, and we think it's binary, but really there's this, this democratic economy is growing. It's designed for all of us, and what Ted and I do in the book is we talk about what are the principles that are at the core of this, because human, humans self-organize around things that we care about. So what are the things that we care about that are really at the heart of this uh, democratic economy? And the first is, is community, right? That we're in this together. And um, uh, my colleagues and I at the Democracy Collaborative had the great good fortune to work with some Native American leaders on Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota. And we opened the book with this story, which is where my work at the Collaborative began. And um, we work with Nick, Nick uh, Tilson, who is a, a Oglala Sioux uh, young person and helped revive traditional spiritual practices on, on Pine Ridge, some of which had been actually illegal uh, in, in prior decades. And he and some uh, other young people uh, began to do spiritual ceremonies, and he says they got a message from the elders. And the elders was, how long will you allow others to determine the fate of your children? Are you not warriors? And out of this, they decided to form the, the Thunder Valley Community Development Corporation. Uh, they're building a regenerative community. It's going to create its own uh, power, solar power, going to recycle its water. They're creating youth skills who are learning construction while they're building homes. And um, it's a remarkable example of what we call community wealth building. Nick is the kind of person who could have gone off and said, I'm going to be a millionaire. 
And, uh, and he didn't. He said, I want to work for the benefit of my community. And that's a very different principle at your heart than saying, than, for example, the entrepreneurs of Silicon Valley who are out to make themselves billionaires and don't notice that one out of three children in their own neighborhoods are going to bed hungry at night. So we see here two different kinds of sensibilities, two different kinds of economies in operation. One is a democratic economy that's designed for all of us to flourish. The other is an extractive economy, and it's designed to extract maximum wealth uh, for, a, for a tiny elite. So community, that's uh, really at the core of a democratic economy. An another is sustainability. We see it in the, in the uh, regenerative community. You know, ecological sustainability is at the heart of uh, the regenerative community being built there. <clears throat> another is inclusion. Uh, we at the Democracy Collaborative are very excited to begin working with, with WACUF, and Harold will be joining us on the, on the podium today, or I suppose, uh, yes, I guess that is actually a podium. This is a lectern, that's a podium. I've, <laughs> I've learned this over the years. Um, and uh, wanting to build, uh, looking at should they be building a, a center for employee ownership at the city level that would be particularly aimed at helping uh, people of color. We think that's a tremendously exciting project. And, you know, we know that our current economy has been built on the backs of people of color. And so as we're building a democratic economy, we need to put the disadvantaged and the people of color at, at the bullseye. That needs to be at the very heart of, of what we're doing. <clears throat> so, uh, and, and I want to also emphasize that um, I'm sure that um, most of you probably know WACUF, which is uh, renowned here in the DC area. It's a CDFI, a community development financial institution. And so it's using the power of capital to create community wealth and community good. And uh, we uh, are doing some research at the Democracy Collaborative. We believe that capital could be the missing agent that could take employee ownership to scale. So, so th this is an example. Um, um, so we're talking about uh, community, uh, sustainability, inclusion. And what I want to also emphasize is that there's a role for all of us in this work in building a democratic e economy. It's not, it's not about us versus them. I mean, capital has, has a big role to play in this, <clears throat> which I think is very powerful. Um, a couple of other principles. One is democratic ownership. Um, um, Maureen talked about how uh, all the challenges that our economy faces and how many, how many people are being left out. One of the more remarkable statistics that, uh, that uh, Ted and I often talk about uh, on our book tour is the fact that 47% of Americans cannot put together $400 in an emergency. That is just shocking. I mean, you think about how many reasons could there be to need $400? Your child breaks an ankle. Your car breaks down. The average car repair costs about $400. You need a band uniform. There are a million reasons you would need $400, and that almost half of us don't have even that, I think is terrifying. I think that's pretty much the, the definition of, of financial uh, uh, anxiety and terror. And so as one economic development leader said to us, it takes a job to get out of poverty. It takes assets to stay out of poverty. And this is some of the really powerful work uh, that I did with Janet Topolsky and, and uh, some other friends of Aspen. Uh, we did some WealthWorks, uh, a WealthWorks project a number of years ago. But it's all about building assets 
Assets and institutions, that's the work of the democratic economy. It's very different than social safety nets or regulations, which are kind of wrapped around the economy as it is, where the 1% owns everything. And then we try to restrain its, its activities with these social safety nets and regulations. And it's like, it's like barnacles on the side of a whale, right? Uh, it doesn't, what we need is we need a democratic economy, these principles to be in the DNA. We need to get into the DNA of, of, of the beast. And that's ownership. Who owns the assets really determines uh, the shape and the power of every economy. <clears throat> so getting assets broadly owned, also redefining the creation of assets. So it's not just about me, 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 it's about, it's about community. <clears throat> so democratic ownership, that's another key principle of a democratic economy. And um, I would add place. Uh, we, we at the Democracy Collaborative do a lot of work with anchor institutions, which are large nonprofit uh, hospitals, universities that are anchored in place. They're not going to get up and leave like a lot of, um, uh, as we know, multinational corporations do. And can they use the power of place? Uh, can, they, can they bring their purchasing, their hiring, their investing into a place? And we have found that this is, place is a particular value that will bring um, strange bedfellows together. Uh, I, you know, I've seen um, some, some um, very large corporations wanting to help their local communities because they, they care about Cleveland, they care about DC, they care about Newark. And so you will have um, people coming together around a shared concern for place. Um, I will say we, uh, we're trying to uh, grow this power of place and the power of anchors. We have a, a large a network of nonprofit hospitals. We have a network of anchor collaboratives that are working locally. And um, I'm thrilled to say that recently our, our hospital uh, anchor network recently had a number of its, uh, these large hospitals come together and pledge 1% of their portfolios for place-based impact investing. It's levering, leveraging about $400 million for the benefit of place. So again, uh, there's a role for all of us in, in building the democratic economy, and it does cohere. This, this is a new paradigm. This is a way to organize an economy. And again, I think that what we need, what we need is here. Um, so I, I, uh, we're going to join uh, our other panelists here. And I just want to say that uh, in closing, that I think a key aim that Ted and I have in, in this book and that all of my co uh, colleagues here at Democracy Collaborative share is that um, this can be the next economic system. We want to encourage all of us to dream big and to take ourselves seriously as agents of history, that we really can be uh, the next system. And I think that's the work that we're all engaged in. So thank you. While, while I'm here at the lectern and still have a, a, a second, can I just ask my colleagues at the Democracy Collaborative to raise your hands if you're here? Yeah, great. Some of my uh, fellow colleagues doing this, this work. Thanks. Great. Thank you. That was terrific. So now I'm welcoming you to the podium. Is that correct? We always called it a riser. Um, <laughs> um, but I welcome you and the panelists to the podium. I will do a brief, as they are taking their seats, I'll do a brief uh, names to faces introduction, just so you know. We just uh, heard from um, 
Marjorie. Uh, next to Marjorie is Carla Bruce, Chief Equity Officer, Fairfa Fairfax County Government. Uh, next to Carla is Harold Pettigrew, uh, who is Executive Director of WACEF. And uh, moderating today's conversation is my colleague Joyce Klein, uh, the Director of our Business Ownership Initiative. So Joyce, I well, thank you, thank you. Uh, and I'd like to add my welcome to Maureen's. Thanks for joining us today at the Aspen Institute. Uh, as Maureen mentioned, I um, direct the part of the Economic Opportunities Program that focuses on expanding economic opportunity through business ownership. Um, and I was really happy when I, I got to be the one who moderated today because um, the themes in the book and the principles that Marjorie and Ted lift up connect very closely to a lot of the themes and the work that we're engaged in the Business Ownership Initiative. Um, Maureen mentioned at the beginning, I think, that... Um, that in the work that we do at EOP, we're very focused on the issues that race and place and gender play and who accesses opportunity and the quality of opportunity that they're able to access. And at, for us at the Business Ownership Initiative, we focused a lot on um, what are the particular issues and challenges that women and people of color uh, and people in certain communities face when they're looking to smart start or grow businesses. So that's one way in which we connect is that focus on place and that focus on inclusion. Mm -hmm. um, a second thing is we the way we work is we work a lot with community organizations that are working in communities to provide capital and access to resources to entrepreneurs mm -hmm. who are trying to start and grow businesses. So we work a lot with community development financial institutions, which Marjorie referenced, which are really focused on this issue and this principle of inclusive finance and inclusive capital. And you'll hear more about the work of CDFIs from, um, from Harold. Um, and then the third thing is, is um, we've been doing a lot of work recently trying to lift up the work that folks like Democracy Collaborative and others are doing to expand employee ownership um, as a way um, to help mm -hmm. both individuals to access and build assets and sh share wealth more broadly, but also because it's a really important way we find of improving job quality, because there is evidence mm -hmm. that employee-owned firms have higher levels of job quality, which is a key piece of the work we do at EOP. So, um, so it's terrific to be able to sort of connect to all those themes uh, in today's conversation. Um, so where I wanted to start um, is by uh, bringing in first Harold and Carla into the conversation. Marjorie and Ted note in the book that what they're really trying to do is sort of lift up and knit together work that's happening on the ground in many communities to build this new kind of economy. Um, and so what we wanted to do with the panel today and this conversation was to bring in folks who are working locally here in the DC region to do just that and have you get a sense of how the ideas and principles mm -hmm. that Marjorie and Ted talked about are really playing out um, locally. So that's what, that's what um, Harold and Carla are here to do for us today. So I'm gonna start with Harold. Sure. Um, have him share a little bit about the work of WACIF, which is the Washington Area Community Investment Fund. But you go by WACIF. That is so, correct. Um, and and WACIF is an organization that really exists because of this idea that, that we need to find it, create an economy that works for everyone and that Absolutely. brings people in. So talk to us a little bit about the work of WACIF. And then also a little bit, because you've been doing this work before you got to WACIF, just why do you think this kind of new economy is important for in terms of the work you're doing now, but why is it important to you personally? Absolutely. And, and thank you, Joyce. And it's truly a pleasure to be here. Uh, it's a timely conversation. And this is where, uh, for us as an organization, WACEF has been around for 32 years, uh, really promoting and driving equity and economic opportunity throughout the region. And I had the pleasure of joining the team uh, roughly four years ago. And what we decided was we have a wonderful history, but we can't rest on that. We know that the issues that we face right now are clear and they're present. And that for us as an organization, we needed to 
revisit our mission, our purpose, our vision, our values. And so we set this path forward uh, that will drive us for the next 30 years uh, that's focused on inclusive entrepreneurship, community wealth building, uh, and equitable economic development. And the wonderful thing as well about the, the book, Marjorie, is that our very first mission in 1987 called for a democratic economy. Oh, no, lovely. <laughs> That's great. And I was taking a look back before the panel just to uh, refresh my notes and memory and things. And, and there was a very bold vision very early on about what this organization could and should stand for. And so we embraced that, thinking through how, as an organization, we can continue on our path to expose and create pathways to entrepreneurship. And we hit on some of the points, right? The reason why is because entrepreneurship is that second most powerful pathway to building wealth. And that's what we're in the business of. Mm -hmm. uh, asset building for the purpose of wealth creation so that our communities can thrive. And so we, we, we look back at our history, understood many of the challenges that we're dealing with now, specifically the racial wealth gap, and thinking through the barriers that we have in our region. Uh, what that led us to was developing three pillars of how we organize our work. The first being inclusive entrepreneurship, the second being community wealth building, the third being equitable economic development. Hmm. We provide capital. We're a CDFI, uh, as mentioned earlier. But even more than that, we're an impact organization. Mm -hmm. Our goal was to begin thinking through ways that we can use the tools we have available to us to embrace the full potential of what our mission calls for. And so, we're developing more capital tools. Uh, last year, and my colleague here, Jennifer Bryant, uh, is leading this work. Last year, we launched an employee ownership initiative because we wanted to expand the pathways by which people could be exposed to uh, entrepreneurship. And so that's kind of the framing at which we're here today. And so for us, it's making sure that we expand those pathways, that we use capital as well to help influence those pathways. But for me, it's a bit personal mm -hmm. because this is home. I'm a native Washingtonian, and for the history of this city, as with many of our cities around the country, we know it's very present, the racial wealth divide that we have. Mm -hmm. And the time and intention that we actually put into the work that we have uh, and the tools we have available to us is critical. We can't address our current problems with, same, with the same solutions that we've applied in the past. We have to continue to push the edge. And so that's where, for me, it's a bit personal. I've had the opportunity as well to work in our local government here in the city uh, and help advise other cities around the country, um, as well as some time in New York City, and really seeing this pathway of how we go about small business development uh, as an industry. This is an exciting time in our country because there is this greater embracing now of how capital needs to look different how it needs to operate different in our communities, whether it's equity and patient capital, to think in different ways about how we deploy uh, more dollars into our communities, uh, to even the expansion of what business looks like. The fact that we're talking about employee ownership right now. Mm -hmm. We couldn't have imagined this 10 years ago. And so it's just a wonderful time right now and a timely one, uh, and I'll, I'll pause there. Great, great, thank you. Um, so Carla, you are, let's bring you in, you're the Chief Equity Officer in Fairfax County. Mm -hmm. Um, which is a new-ish role. <laughs> You've been doing it for a bit. Um, but talk a little bit about what that means um, and why that role exists and, and why it's important in Fairfax County to do what you call advancing inclusive prosperity. And also, if you could share a little bit about what, what that, why you're doing this work from a personal perspective, that would be great to hear. Great. Thank you for having me. 
So it is a new role. Um, I've been in the role for just about um, a year and a half, but I will say I'm a part of a growing network of chief equity officers across the count, uh, country. So, um, so while it's new work, I think it's work that's sort of beginning to expand and hopefully will eventually come to scale where I'm, we're not such a small group of folks. Uh, but I think it's important to take a step back. So I came to Fairfax County 20 years ago. In fact, I celebrated my 20th anniversary working for Fairfax County back just in September. Um, and my background is in human services. And I worked in Fairfax County for 20 years and had about five years before that working in the field of human services and working among a group of people that were probably the most hardworking people you could ever work with, right? They, they saw need in a community and in their particular discipline worked very, very hard to address that need in community. But we kept working, we continue to work in our same circles um, and sadly, with the same families, generationally, right? So um, there's a nonprofit that we work with in Fairfax County that talks about um, being able to see three generations of families stand in line waiting for food, right? Wow. And so it begins to paint a picture to you that there's something wrong here, right? Because no matter how hard we work, right? How, no matter how hard we work, no matter how hard the individuals and the families are working, there's a persistence um, um, that's happening that we're not overcoming. And so we had to take a step back and recognize that one, we had to think more broadly than human services and our other partners, education, right? So this is a bigger issue than um, just the work of human services. Um, and that there are things in the institution. There are things in the structure, in the places where people live and then how those places are created institutionally that need to be addressed in order to affect outcomes for people. And so it was sort of with that aha that um, Fairfax embarked on a, an effort that we have coined as One Fairfax. And One Fairfax is a policy adopted jointly by our uh, County Board of Supervisors and our school board that says that we will consider equity in all of our planning and decision making across our full, the full expanse of government, across the full expanse of our school system, and that we will recognize as the two major systems and um, governing bodies in the, in, in the jurisdiction, we will do that together and we will do it collectively with our community. Um, and so to lead that work, um, there needed to be some, because again, that was a big goal, a, a big vision, but we needed a, um, to sort of have a focus and a structure and support for it. And that's how the role of the chief equity officer evolved. Um, but to do that work and to sort of tie together the work of discrete functions of the government. So again, from human services to public safety, to land use, to any other function, tax administration, right? Every function of government to center a focus on one Fairfax um, has been the challenge of this role. And the way we've done that is to think about, well, what's driving the inequity that we're seeing, right? So we've really identified it um, in, in five key elements. Cradle to career success. So 
We want to ensure from birth to the point at which um, an individual transitions successfully into a career that can sustain them, sustain their family. We have to have a pathway of uh, a pathway and a system of supports. We also want to focus on being a community that's healthy, physically healthy, emotionally healthy, and that fosters the conditions um, of well-being. Uh, we want to focus on justice you know, uh, a justice system that works for everyone and a community as well that's safe. We wanna focus on how we're developing our community. So having a range of, of housing options in, a, um, in different levels of affordability, um, as well as um, what are the assets and the features in, the, in communities that make them good places to live. But we think all of those things tie together toward a notion of inclusive prosperity. Because again, all of those things sort of is a calculation if we can ensure all of those things, then people are more likely to be able to participate in Fairfax County's economy. So I think it's important to acknowledge Fairfax County has a strong economy, right? And we want for Fairfax County to continue to have a strong economy. But as we look at our population and recognize that it's diversifying and that the income gap is growing and is continuing to grow, that, as you said, <laughs> You can't keep doing the same things, right? right? You got to think right. differently about how mm -hmm. we're approaching um, and, our, and how we're interpreting success. And so what we have tried to do in terms of uh, One Fairfax is center our work on the economy, again, but to make it our success not just about a strong economy, but one that's more inclusive and one that's more resilient. And um, again, I think it's, um, I'll, I'll leave it there, but I think that while there are many moral reasons that we want to be One Fairfax, we have to understand um, that you know our theme for One Fairfax is we all do better when we all do better, right? So we have to have people understand that there is, um, it's not about these people or those people or me and what I might lose. It is how if we can invest in success for our whole population, then our whole population does better. Thank you. That's, I think that's a really nice way of, from your personal story of exemplifying Marjorie's point about barnacles on a whale and that uh -huh. like from the human services perspective, you're not getting at the core of in, right. what's in the economy that we really need to change. So that, right. that was a, that's a great story. Um, so one thing I just wanted to, one more thing to give uh, Harold and Carla a chance to, to talk about since, um, since this work is so deeply rooted in place, any sort of one fact or thing about your community, about DC or about Fairfax that you think the group should understand as you think about how you do this work. Harold, this is your cue to talk about co-ops in DC. Yeah. In <laughs> there you go. Thanks for I saw that look in your face. That. Yeah. I'm the softball's uh, getting slower. That's right. The uh, no, and 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 that that's a critical point. Um, and so, much of this discussion uh, is really a renaissance because uh, one of the things that uh, we we we've we're keen on here in the region. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking directly at, at Jennifer because she's helped really to elevate this for us, to understand that the strategies that we're putting forward, they're not necessarily new, even though mm -hmm. they feel very new. Like DC has a history, a long history, uh, specifically uh, with cooperative work, worker ownership, uh, and really having that be a tool for which people can participate in our economy. And that's what we're talking about. Democratic, uh, a, a democratic economy is just creating pathways for people to fully participate, mm -hmm. to be full mm -hmm. citizens. That's what we're talking about. And so uh, uh, a couple of examples, um, 
let me grab my notes here, Capital Cab Company. Uh, that's a, a historic company in, in Washington, D.C. Uh, that was at one time one of the biggest taxi companies in the world. Mm -hmm. There were 1,500 uh, taxis. It was cooperatively owned. Nanny Helen Burroughs, uh, one of the famous uh, corridors, uh, commercial corridors in our city, was actually named after Nanny Helen Burroughs, who created uh, 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 Cooperative Industries of DC. Over five years, they served over 6,000 families with production, canned food, they made clothing. It was a viable business. And so when you begin thinking about the strategies that we're employing now, we're hearkening back, we're getting guidance, we're looking to our history to understand pathways that can help us think now in a more dynamic way because we know that it's been done before. We know that it's been tried and proven as a viable business model. And that's where we come into this discussion, right? Is how do you create pathways that are accessible, but that for us as an institution, we can bring our, our full skill sets and the full tools that we have available to make sure that we can, uh, uh, that there are successful strategies. So thank you for that, Joyce, because okay. it's, 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 it's important for us to steep the work that we're doing, even though we're moving forward, uh, that we steep it in uh, some of the history that we do have as a region. Carla, anything you want to share about Fairfax County that you think people should know or that's... Yeah, no, I think it's important to think about place. And when we talk about our Fairfax County strategy in its most basic term, it's, it's about people, it's about place, and it's about power. Yeah. Um, and um, so from a place perspective, so Fairfax County, if you're not familiar, is um, a large suburban area just outside of, of the district. Um, we have a population of 1.2 million people, and I always forget the actual square miles, but I know for sure that it's larger than the state of Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's a big place. And so depending on who you are and where you are in Fairfax, you might have a different life experience. And so we've been fortunate in our journey that as we've been on this path toward becoming one Fairfax, again, this is good timing because there are a lot of people that are having this aha moment at the same time. So we were um, supported in some research back in 2015 uh, by uh, PolicyLink and the University of Southern California. And what they did for us is an equitable growth profile. Mm -hmm. And I, it identified some key demographic statistics for Fairfax County and it predicted that um, by this coming year will be a majority minority community. Um, but the other thing is that it did is it tied that, um, that um, change in our demographic to our economy. And it basically said that if um, people of color weren't sort of participating in our economy fully, sort of earning at their sort of maximum potential, then in the next 10, 20 years, as we think about our future, then sort of the Fairfax County that we know is not insured, right? And so it led us to think about, okay, so that's the population um, that is not fully participating in our economy, where are they? And so another study that was done, this one was done by Virginia Commonwealth University with support from the Northern Virginia Health Foundation, looked at the uneven opportunity landscape. And it coined a term um, called islands of disadvantage. Mm -hmm. 
So amongst all the areas of wealth and prosperity in Fairfax County, there are these geographic areas that are predictable. So when you look at every indicator of life success and you look at what, where the people in the places that aren't faring as well, these areas pop up over and over again. So from an education perspective, from an employment perspective, from a health perspective. So it gave us a focus on the population, but also the places where people live. And so it's really given us sort of a North Star. And our North Star is we want to convert those areas that are um, now islands of disadvantage to communities of opportunity. Um, so place matters, right? Because place is the primary vehicle for um, accessing opportunity, right? And so we don't want it to be predictable by place or population, your chance at success in Fairfax County. Great. So um, Marjorie mentioned that the book is really organized around a set of principles. What mm -hmm. are the first principles for this, for this new economy? And so we're going to dig into a little bit about how those principles play out in practice. And Harold, I'm going to come back to you first. Um, so you work with small businesses. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when we have macro conversations where we talk about how do we improve job quality or how do we address issues of sustainability and the challenges facing our climate, um, we hear like asking businesses to solve this problem is too hard. Mm -hmm. um, it's going to make them uncompetitive. Um, it's going to drive them out of business. What I'd love to hear is when you're having conversations with the small businesses you work with, what's their response or how do they, um, how do they come to those questions of what's our role in terms of job quality, our role in terms of sustainability, and, and, and how do you work with them at Wake It on that? Sure. And, that, and, and that's a very fair question because we, we actually do get that uh, a lot, specifically when you're, you're thinking of new ways of operating that might be out of a traditional uh, sort of business mindset. Uh, there's a couple of things that work to our advantage. Uh, one, I think, is that many of the companies that we work with, and I'll bring it to the person instead of the company, right? the, the business owners, the entrepreneurs, they're steeped in the communities that we're working in. And so there's a certain level of values that we're able to have an appeal towards because what we know is that the small businesses we work with, they're the ones that are hiring locally. Mm -hmm. They're caring about the youth. And so they invest in different ways that aren't always quantifiable. They serve as community anchors. Mm -hmm. They're anchors for jobs. And the throughput, the through line in all of that is there's values associated to how our entrepreneurs uh, are operating their businesses. And so coming from that vantage point, I think, is uh, one anchoring factor that allows us to begin having discussions about broader impact. What does business growth look like for you? Mm -hmm. What type of asset are you actually uh, creating? Because truth be told, we do have critical issues that are all throughout the region. And the, the, the thing that's not unique about Fairfax of all the special things is that the racial wealth divide and the other inequality exactly. issues that we're dealing with is throughout our region. Mm -hmm. And so when you begin to think about how our, how our businesses are positioned, in part, a lot of the people that we're working with, they're also focused on creating opportunities for their own households and for themselves. And so it's a careful balance that we have to achieve. So specifically when we begin thinking about whether it is sustainability or employee ownership, often it's uh, a discussion in values. Specifically with employee ownership, one value point is actually the, the, the brand that that person has poured their heart and soul into creating. Whatever the business, whether it's a new approach or whether it's something that's in a competitive environment, 
the ability to create, to create an asset is difficult. Mm -hmm. Hands down. Any business owner that tell you the, the creation of their company was easy is probably not that successful. <laughs> <laughs> because it, it's your life. Mm -hmm. you know? And so having a discussion about how you turn over ownership or expand ownership to that company that you've built, it's a difficult proposition. But that's what makes discussions around succession planning, discussions around the brand living beyond you, the brand being bigger than you, because it means so much more to the people that uh, in the community that see that brand. And so all of that was to say part of what our articulation has been uh, specifically with introducing employee ownership to uh, companies and, 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 and different approaches, it's been how do we preserve your legacy? How do we continue mm -hmm. the asset that you've created? Uh, and we also know we want to get to that point of retiring at some point for all of us, right? Uh, and so we've really used that pathway um, mm -hmm. of engaging our businesses. Great, great. So Carly, you talked about the differing places and how opportunity differs in different places. Can you give us some examples of when it gets to, to policies, actual policies or programs or projects that the county's working on, how that plays out and how you're working to address that? Absolutely. Um, so. I talked about the sort of five equity drivers, and really that's, those are unifying because then you can sort of use those drivers to tie all the various actions and functions of government together so that everybody can sort of see the ultimate results we're working toward. And so two things that we've done where I've seen this unifying work, both across the county government and the school system, as well as with the county government and our community, are around housing affordability and childcare. Mm -hmm. So as we've identified um, sort of what we want to work on, um, those are two issues that sort of popped up to the top. Sort of they were unifying across, you know, sort of um, many different groups as sort of the key issue. If we could solve one key issue, and solve is a term I've used loosely, address one key issue, what were they? So repeatedly those mm -hmm. things came up. So those are two areas where we are um, making greater investments, looking differently at um, sort of how we utilize our own resources from a, you know, our own um, assets, our own land, our own mm -hmm. buildings, um, mm -hmm. and sort of leveraging them for the benefit of achieving um, different outcomes. It's also an area where I think we are sort of, sort of what tied us um, originally to the Democracy Collaborative. Mm -hmm. And it was recognizing our role as an anchor, right? Mm -hmm. in, mm -hmm. um, in sort of our spend and you know, sort of what we're spending our, our resources on and who we're spending our resources um, to serve and who we're spending our resources with. Um, and so, you know, those two policy areas sort of underlying that are also areas for producing this notion of um, inclusive prosperity. I will say, though, that um, as we sort of do this work on One Fairfax and, and recognize that, that we can be working collectively within the government and with our school system and with our community, there are other drivers of outcomes that we also have to consider. And a lot of that is federal and state policy. And so, um, Right now at the state level, one of the things that we're trying to tackle is um, the definition of best value. So we are governed by um, the Virginia procurement law and Virginia procurement law defines best value as what's the best quality and what's the best cost, right? 
And what that doesn't allow, though, is for us to consider other socioeconomic factors and other um, inclusion factors that would be of value to our community. And mm -hmm. so the advocacy at the state level to look at changing procurement law, I think, is mm -hmm. going to be um, significant in terms of other things that we'd like to explore doing. Um, so policy, you know, again, one Fairfax has been something, we adopted that policy in November of 2017. The term was coined in 2014 or 2015. It's, we've talked about it, we've embraced it, but it won't become a reality until we can take action. And those actions have to be supported by policy. So again, focusing our po policies in the areas that we think will have the greatest impact on the individuals and families in, um, that, um, that are most vulnerable in our community, but also acknowledging where we see barriers to the policies we would like to take and addressing those as well. Mm -hmm. Great. So Marjorie, let's bring you back in. Yeah, I, I just, I just want to say I, re I really love everything that I'm hearing. It's 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 so wonderful to write a book and you you're taking these sort of big views and then you come down and you say here it's exactly here it's exactly here is what's happening. Um, so let me just offer a couple of comments. Uh, so Carla, I think you recognizing that Fairfax County is an anchor that is so so powerful. And if I could sort of uh, zoom up again to a, a larger scale. We, we've been doing some work at the Democracy Collaborative in Preston, England, which is kind of a, a mm -hmm. Rust Belt city in, in northern England, very similar to Cleveland, uh, where we've done some work. And uh, they used government as an anchor. They had the county, they had the schools, they had actually the pension fund. Um, buying locally, they shifted hundreds of millions of, of pounds of purchasing into the mm -hmm. local county. Uh, they had the pension fund um, doing some investing locally. They were actually able to move the needle on unemployment and poverty in this city, and um, with some with some demonstrable uh, results. And in fact, Price Waterhouse Coopers named Preston the most improved city in the UK um, mm -hmm. because of this work with anchors. Wow. So it, these are large levers, and this is when we talk about the role of assets. You know, it's not just—it's not just money. It's like all communities have That's assets right. Right. that we can. You know, uh, Carla was talking about all the assets that we have, and, and right. can we can we use those to benefit our local communities? Investing, purchasing, hiring, the skills of youth. I mean, there's all kinds of assets mm -hmm. that we have. If we can keep them local and and use them, we can really uh, move the needle. I That's think right. on, yeah. on on community benefit. So that's uh, is such an exciting uh, story of what you're doing. And let me just add. Um, Harold, I'm, I'm tremendously excited about your work also. You're talking about business owners, they want to preserve their legacy, and can we transition to employee ownership? Um, and this is a, an issue that is up for our society right now. There are 2.34 million businesses owned by baby boom entrepreneurs, that something is going to happen to those businesses in the next 10 years. If past trends hold, 90% of them will close. <clears throat> Very few that are, are uh, not, not that many are put on the market, those that are generally do not sell. These are viable businesses, many right. of them. And, and you know, could they be transitioned to employee ownership? Does capital have a role to play in that? I mean, I think those are the things that you are, you have your hands on uh, locally here in DC. And I think that there's a substantial opportunity. And particularly if you're looking at businesses that employ uh, maybe half or more people of color, 
that's a, a particular way to, to benefit um, those communities. So there's uh, um, some very large, so I, I wanna just point out these two issues, the role of anchors, the role of what's been called the silver tsunami, all these businesses coming on the market. There are large forces that we can work with to build the democratic economy. Uh, and I think that's exactly what we're, what we're talking about here. Great, thank you. Um, so how do we, thinking about, um, you've started to get us there, Marjorie, which is great. Um, we had some great examples of how this stuff, how this plays out on the ground, this concept of building a democratic economy. What does it take to move to an, an economic system, which is a democratic economy? So let's touch on that a little bit. Um, Carla, you mentioned at the beginning that you're not, you're not the only chief equity officer out there, that you are actually there are other communities that are using this model. And talk a little bit about how you're engaged with others nationally um, who are doing this kind of work and how you're learning from each other and trying to build this work. Yeah, so earlier as I was telling sort of the story of my um, uh, shift in focus in career as well as the shift in focus for Fairfax County, I made a very long story short. <laughs> um, and, and part of the, um, the detail of that story is that when we began to have the aha moment that our issues couldn't be addressed um, at the individual level and just at the, in, mm -hmm. uh, the person level, but we had to elevate and consider more sort of institutionally and structurally um, how we needed to foster change. We started to look at what was happening across the country and we came across an organization called the Government Alliance on Race and Equity. Mm -hmm. um, and they formed probably right at about the same time as we were um, sort of coming um, into this new awareness. And it was a group of um, folks who had been doing this work mainly on the West Coast, um, so the, in Oregon and in Washington State, um, but sort of recognizing that, again, to bring this to scale, we really had to think not just about our own local communities, but just nationally, sort of how they could um, support others. And so right now, I think at last count, there is a network of, I think, 170 jurisdictions across the country who at least have membership with the Government Alliance on Race and Equity. And I'm not sure specifically how many of those particular jurisdictions have chief equity officers. But I will say that having a chief equity officer, and I should mention that sort of how I'm situated in our organization matters, is that I work on the team of the um, uh, County executive, right? So in his office, working with executive leadership and our elected leadership to devise our strategy around advancing opportunity in Fairfax County. Um, and so, but depending on the jurisdiction, folks do it differently, right? So um, I think local context is important, but you know, as we talk about, we're a urban suburban um, community and given the way our, govern, uh, our government is structured, a chief equity officer placed the way I am makes sense. But as you look at these jurisdictions across the country, while they've embraced a focus on achieving equity, they've done it in many, many different ways. But I will say that there is a common sort of um, um, framework for effective practice it's normalizing and specifically mm -hmm. normalizing conversations about race. Right. So we haven't talked about that uh, much on the panel, but when you talk about who is not faring as well, predictably, it, you can predict it by race. Um, you have to normalize sort of conversations about our history, right? So we inherited 
a system, right? right? So we can continue to perpetuate the existing system or we can do something different, but we have to acknowledge the history. So normalizing, organizing within organization and in organizations and across organizations, but ultimately getting to results through operationalizing. And so that same basic framework is the framework that they established from the effective work that was happening in the jurisdictions out West, and it's now being brought to scale nationally through um, the Government Alliance on Race and Equity. Fantastic. If I can add to that, Absolutely. Joyce, really quickly, and, 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 and that's a wonderful point, because I think it's, when you begin to think about not only our, our government institutions, and it's wonderful that, uh, that that step has been taken, and you think about the other uh, taken to create a, mm -hmm. a, a chief equity officer and uh, in, in what you're leading, Carla, as you begin to think about the other levers, yep. levers right? Because it's not just government. Yep. Mm -hmm. As we begin to think about capital, as we begin to think about mm -hmm. uh, the other pillars that are uh, uh, pathways for folks to pursue economic opportunity. It's important that when we're having discussions about equity, that we're specific. Just mm -hmm. to, to call back to that point, we have definitive issues in Washington, D.C., just as one example of one area that's in this region, where definitively when you're talking about poor neighborhoods, it's black and brown communities. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. And if we're not, not only comfortable, but also intentional in how we're directing mm -hmm. our resources, mm -hmm. how we're directing the solutions that we're putting forward in those communities, mm -hmm. then we're going to miss the mark. That's right. Because we'll have discussions about a, a, a diverse uh, economy, uh, an inclusive economy, but it won't be filled with the issues that are of our day, that are steeped in this country's history. Mm -hmm. And so we have to be intentional when in, in, in D.C. there's an 81x difference between black households and white, white households. Wow. That's an issue. And so for us as an organization, uh, that was a part of the shift that we made in how we leverage capital. 80% uh, of our portfolio is to entrepreneurs of color. Last year, all of our lending went to entrepreneurs of color. 50% of our lending went to women entrepreneurs. There has to be intention tied to uh, direction uh, mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and how it is that we're, we're moving forward solutions. Yeah, Marjorie. So something is, is coming to mind for me, Joyce, and that is uh, one of the people we interview in the book is uh, um, some people doing racial equity work in Portland, Oregon. Mm -hmm. And uh, they've, they've been doing some remarkable work trying to reorient the entire economic development division in Portland around racial and gender equity. And it's a very, very powerful story. And one of these uh, wonderful uh, executives said to me, she said, you know, when you have, now Portland, Oregon has a lot of, of of, of people of color who are not doing well. That's not what, what we nor normally think of of Portland. But she said, if you have half, if half of your body is not doing well, <laughs> is not functioning well, you don't have a healthy body. That's right. You know? So if you have half of Portland or half of DC or half of Fairfax County that's just not, not functioning, it can't repair a car or put a, you know, put a kid through school, right. you don't have a healthy community. So I think it's, this, this, this notion of inclusion is just absolutely, absolutely core. And just to come to that, you know, in, in some of the work that we've been doing on business ownership and particularly looking at it from a racial equity lens, I think the other thing to think about is, Marjorie, you pointed out the silver tsunami of uh -huh. people retiring. Um, and one of the we, things we see in communities that are struggling economically is that the rates of firm deaths are higher than the rates of new form formation. And we see that levels of mm -hmm. entrepreneurship are 
um, declining generally in many places. So if you combine that with the demographic shift, that means more and more of the people who are going to be looking to start and grow businesses are people of color. And those are the people who have faced the greatest barriers. If we don't confront that, we're going to have an issue with who's creating the businesses, who's growing the businesses. Right. Um, and are they getting the resources that they need to sort of build our economy from that perspective? So thank you for, for highlighting that. I'm going to do one quick lightning round, but then I'm going to open for questions. So for those of you who have questions, get them ready. Um, I want to talk a little bit, Carla, you started the conversation a bit about policy, but since we're sitting in a policy program here, we like to have the policy conversation. What's at least one policy that you'd like to see change that could really support um, the growth of a, of a more democratic economy? Marjorie, you okay. ready? <laughs> uh, sure. I, um, I do think that supporting the growth of employee ownership, mm -hmm. the time is now, the need, the need is now, I think it could be huge. That we can have state centers of employee ownership. We could have uh, city centers of employee ownership. We could have uh, uh, federal funding for mm -hmm. for those or for an employee ownership bank. These are these are some of the ideas that have been floated. In fact, uh, that one proposal that I that I've seen is for uh, even loan guarantees. So you don't even have government doesn't even have to provide the capital, but could attract private capital with mm -hmm. with loan guarantees, which could be which could be piloted at a smaller or a large level. Speaking my language, Marjorie. That's great. <laughs> I mean, just to be, just to reiterate what I shared earlier, at this particular moment for Fairfax County, I think that definition of best value is going to be, if not the answer to everything, mm -hmm. is really going to open up, again, not to overuse the term opportunity, but it's just going to allow us to explore new things because often policy sets in the way of, sets in the way of, the good ideas that we would like to explore and we get afraid of it. Just the fact that we're willing to put it on our legislative agenda is a big deal for us. And so we're really excited about um, um, the actions of the General Assembly. Mm -hmm. Great. Harold? Yeah, I think uh, I'll rattle off a, a couple, Joyce. Mm -hmm. I won't quite follow, uh, follow direction there. But I think uh, <laughs> particularly when you look at, and from a couple different angles, uh, the Community Reinvestment Act. Uh, specifically the parameters around our financial mm -hmm. institutions, mm -hmm. ensuring that not only support is there to help lift up this work, but also that as we think about how lending is done, as we think mm -hmm. about how capital is deployed, that there's stronger frameworks to ensure that our banking institutions uh, are investing in our communities. CDFIs as a whole are a rounding error in terms of the mm -hmm. uh, assets uh, that are under management, and there's some pretty significant CDFIs that are in the hundreds of millions of dollars of assets under management. And so that's just one area. Mm -hmm. But transitioning to local, uh, as you begin to think about, uh, for any of you that are in government or have an opportunity to influence government, procurement is a great place to start, mm -hmm. uh, just to re re reiterate that. Specifically, policies that are focused intentionally with the problems that you have in your areas. And so specifically, a, an MWBE focus, a focus on minority set-aside programs, mm -hmm. they're critical. Also licensing. I had the opportunity to be the licensing administrator here in DC. So you begin to think about barriers to opportunities. Mm -hmm. Much of our licensing infrastructure is draconian. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. at the city, state, uh, county uh, levels, I, I would look at all of those different areas mm -hmm. uh, of barriers to access to opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, if there are ways to put more capital into CDFIs, that's always a, a wonderful <laughs> 
place to focus. Great, thank you. <laughs> Terrific, great, great policy ideas. So we're gonna open up for questions here. A few things I wanna note. For folks who are joining by live stream, if you tweet a question to our talk opportunity hashtag, we can maybe queue it up. Our team here will be monitoring Twitter. Um, and so if you have a question, please raise your hand. We'll ask the, someone with the mic to come to you. Um, one thing I wanted to point out also, just as we go into the questions, um, for our panel today, we wanted to lift up local DC area um, examples, but I also happen to know that our community strategies group, which is one of our policy programs here at the Aspen Institute, has a group who's meeting today and who's in the audience, because I see some of their faces. Um, and I just, they're, they're the Rural Development Innovators Group. Um, and they are from rural communities in the US who are using many of these strategies. So they're focusing on community wealth building, they're focusing on inclusion, they're focusing on entrepreneurship, they're focusing on issues of sustainability, which we didn't touch on as much today, but clearly a critical piece. So if any of you all, I'll just invite you into the conversation if you want to share a little bit about what you're doing, we'd love to hear that. Um, but also love to hear questions from the group. So yes, gentleman right here. I'm John Coonrod, and I coordinate the movement for community-led development, which is outside the US mostly. But I'm fascinated by the opportunity of the Virginia legislature. And um, my wife used to work for the Virginia legislature. So it, is there sort of a set of norms or some, what exactly would that procurement reform look like? Would it be, there would be this point system for minority employee-owned local organizations, or how would that work so that, so that we can all write, you know, everybody in Virginia can write in and get that to happen? Okay. So again, the devil's in the details, right? <laughs> so the first step is to get the law um, changed. I will say, though, that part of, uh, of the benefit of being connected to um, an organization like the Government Alliance on Race and Equity, or there are um, jurisdictions across the country who have embedded those those practices. Yeah. So that is a challenge because again, you, again, we all do better when we all do better. We don't want to shift from one. So there's a scarcity notion that we want to, you know, we have to overcome. It's about broadening the pot and expanding the pot, not sort of limiting who has access to it. So we are, we do want to be careful in our approach, but our strategies are going to be to look at how other jurisdictions have have done it successfully. But right now, our focus right now is on getting the law changed. If, if I can offer a couple things here too, because mm -hmm. there are a number of cities that are grappling with this exact same topic. And so I had the pleasure of serving as the small business director in DC as well. So we, we grapple with a lot mm -hmm. of those topics. Um, so first, intentionality around uh, minority inclusion um, and there being preference tied to it. That, that's first and foremost. I think second, the capital programs that are actually tied to opportunity programs. Often what you have is a, uh, a gap you create a lot of contracting opportunities, mm -hmm. but not the capital, so that those companies can actually be successful in going after those opportunities. Lines of credit are important. Mm -hmm. Government will not pay on time. I'm not sure if that uh, policy <laughs> approach will account for the time at which a company is paid, mm -hmm. but that's a very real issue. You know, if you can't pay your payroll, yeah. uh, mm -hmm. it's problematic. Um, but also specifically to procurement unbundling. Mm -hmm. You have to ensure that if, if it's a desire to target small businesses, that opportunities align with the capacity of the small businesses that are part of your community. Mm -hmm. So those are just a couple areas that, uh, from a, when it's a procurement regime that we're talking about, mm -hmm. uh, policies that are supportive of small business and intentional about minority businesses. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay, 
this woman here. Hi, um, my name's Patty Rose and I run a small nonprofit in DC called Green Space and we work on sustainability, but that's not actually the focus of my question. Um, uh, I've been uh, taking a strong look at um, this whole approach of collective impact mm -hmm. and it seems that um, all of what you're talking about really lends itself mm -hmm. to a more collaborative and data-driven, um, accountable um, approach. And one of the challenges I know, at least, at least in this region, is we don't have a really deep pocket in terms of the foundations that are here to support mm -hmm. that kind of work. Mm -hmm. And if you were, if you're familiar with that and you were interested in it, how might you approach it? Um, because I, it seems like um, you go after certain initiatives, but you don't have the follow-up of how to integrate it into common practice, and you mm -hmm. don't have the data to follow up of mm -hmm. what the impact is and whether it's working in the longer term. Mm -hmm. So I'll say that you know, collective impact, while I may not have used that particular term, is sort of one of those sort of foundational concepts um, for how we're organizing our work around One Fairfax particularly on this shared agenda piece, right? So recognizing that we have a shared interest in the success in sort of, we're all you know, basically cogs on a wheel, right? We're moving in that direction. We have to recognize our unique roles um, in advancing this, you know, our efforts toward achieving the broader goal. Um, but also around uh, the, this whole mutual, uh, re mutually reinforcing activities as, as I think what they call it. So I think that there's a lot of disparate work that happens, but not a lot of effort to sort of help people to tie it. So I will say that that's a role that Fairfax County government is stepping into. It's also a role that we fund in some of our nonprofits in our community, recognizing that there is value in that world. And I will say that as we have been doing more work in the, in the space of advancing um, racial and social equity, we have been doing it in conjunction with a lot of our philanthropic partners in this area. And I think that there is a growing recognition in that, amongst that group of the need for us to work in intersecting um, collective ways um, and the need to work with government. Um, to leverage the, you know, leverage government as a resource, but also to affect policy change ultimately. Um, so I think that those principles give us a good framework in terms of sort of how it gets implemented um, in practice. I think that's you know sort of unique to particular communities, but I think as long as you sort of figure out the best ways to support those respective functions, again, government is playing roles that, you know, what some might call in that traditional backbone type function. Mm -hmm. We're funding those roles in other cases. So I think that those principles are, are definitely ones that, um, that are, are beneficial as a way of, as I said, organizing. Yeah. Only small thing I would add is I think there, there needs to be greater translation that takes place. That I think there's a core set of values when you have uh, people who are public servants who are committed to having impact, right? Mm -hmm. And often that's forgotten. And I think the, 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 the time frame and the urgency at which most governments have to operate, whether it's city, county, state, federal, uh, is different than folks that are outside of government. Mm 
And so I think the ability to translate uh, what it is you're looking to do in a translatable way so that it's understood more quickly as a viable solution that meets whether it's that foundation or that government's uh, ultimate goals of where they're going, the burden is often on those out of us outside of government to, to, to make that effort. There's a reason why our initiative in DC is the employee ownership initiative. Very easy to understand. Because one of the things we found early was that worker-owned cooperatives, <laughs> having that as a, a, a central focal point, it became a barrier because we were trying to translate. And DC has a long history of cooperatives. And you know, so it, 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 for us, it was how do we translate in the easiest way hmm. a solution that everyone wants in terms of creating new pathways mm -hmm. to, to entrepreneurship. And so it's a very small example, but I, I would just complement that yeah. with what uh, Carla mentioned as well. Values are often aligned, but that translation sometimes becomes right. a barrier. Mm -hmm. Got a question here? Hello, um, my name is Dennis Olson. I work for the United Food and Commercial Workers International Union. And um, I've been representing um, UFCW in the Good Food Purchasing Policy Coalition of the for the D.C. area, and um, so that is based on a program that was developed over five years ago in Los Angeles by the Food Policy Council there, and it's a procurement policy mainly targeted not it's it's expanding to other public institutions, but it's mostly been focused on public school districts, um, and it has five sustainability categories. Uh, <clears throat> including a valued workforce um, that makes having a union contract one of the highest scores. Mm -hmm. It's a scoring system. And then also worker-owned cooperatives is another high score. And then local economy, environmental sustainability, animal welfare, and nutrition. So that has now, uh, in the past six years, been passed by over a dozen um, various city institutions across the country. And one of the big obstacles we've run into gets to this best value question, which is the um, lack of transparency in the, in the procurement policy and in the bidding process and the selection process. Um, so I guess two questions. Have you guys heard about the good food purchasing policy? Or are you looking at that as, because it does have a pretty good track record. It's coming from the ground up from the city level up, not for, but we're running into the, these issues that you're talking about with best value mm -hmm. at both the state and the federal level. The school lunch, pro, you know, the federal school lunch program is totally opaque, the, opaque as far as you know being able to tell what those supply chains look like. Mm -hmm. um, so I just wondered if you had, had heard about that and whether you have any um, responses to that. Not specifically that, but I, we are, food is one particular area that we are looking at. And I will say that as we talk about implementation, um, transparency is important because we have to be clear for our own purposes how we're defining um, this sort of new definition of best value and, and the criteria that are established for ourselves as well as for those on the outside to better understand. So I will definitely look into and share with the folks that are working directly on, on this initiative that specific example, but I would just reinforce that transparency is key. Mm -hmm. That's great. Thank you. That's a great example, Shank. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I see a question here, blue shirt, and then someone, I see the person in front of you as well. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Mr. Pettigrew, um, recently uh, Shaquille O'Neal uh, said that he would encourage the creation of Papa John's franchises mm -hmm. at um, historically black colleges and universities. Uh, 
The issue with that is that franchises are a double-edged sword. They are a route for entrepreneurship, but they're controlled mainly by multinational corporations that often work against the interests of workers. Have you thought about ways that the franchise model can be reformed or changed so that, um, or can it be changed in a way so that uh, the benefits of franchisees, of franchising as a pathway to entrepreneurship isn't always followed by uh, the adverse impacts that it can have on workers and the fact that often even the franchisees are victims of an extractive economic model. Yeah, so I think the, the, the short answer specifically to those, to those multinationals, uh, no, I haven't thought about that, because uh, that's well <laughs> beyond my influence locally. Um, but I think the, 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 the broader uh, underpinning of your question, I think a, a proper response is, one of the things that we focused on is how do you expose entrepreneurship in much greater ways to uh, like the ecosystem that's here? Because part of it is folks just want to pursue entrepreneurship. It's not necessarily, at least I've never come across it, you know, people necessarily want to start a franchise. Hmm. It's an opportunity. You know, and, and for some, it might be a viable opportunity. So we, ha we actually have companies we work with locally that have franchised their business model hmm. with a set of values, though, that are embedded in how they've operated as a business owner. And so to, to, to me, how we've addressed that, and not directly, but I think indirectly, is the promotion of the power of entrepreneurship. And I often say that. Uh, because we, we, we think there is a value, of course, that's there to get to our ultimate mission of creating greater opportunities. So that's, that's the only way that I would respond. But if someone wants to start, there's been plenty of successful business owners that have uh, uh, started, uh, and I won't name any specific franchises, but that have launched major franchises. And through that have been community anchors and uh, uh, for jobs and everything else. And so I just think if we're, if we're able to, not only our organization, but our ecosystems are focused on how do you reduce barriers to entrepreneurship and expose uh, more examples of what successful entrepreneurship looks like locally, then it'll get at uh, that exact issue. Anyone else on the panel want to speak to that? Well, one of the ideas that um, we've explored at the Democracy Collaborative is if you do have franchising, could you make employee ownership part of that? Mm -hmm. uh, it's an idea, and, and uh, we'll see if it has legs. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you. Question here. Hi. Jeff Schwartz with the Appalachian Regional Commission. I have a two-part question for you. Are there any particular types of companies that are better or worse suited for employer ownership? And what would be the right mix in an, in an economy, a metro economy such as D.C.? What, how much would you want to have employer ownership, and how much would be too much? Yeah, I'll, I'll kind of kick off. Um, for me, what's important is that there's a healthy economy of entrepreneurship. The, we, we've also often had these, oh, I've had these discussions nationally, right, about you know, folks who are looking to uh, drive ecosystems that are supportive of employee ownership. That's great because that work needs to happen because there's not enough opportunity or pathways to employee ownership at present. Employee ownership is not going to be good for everyone. Mm -hmm. Just like small business ownership isn't good for everyone, right? And so I think having a healthy mix um, is important. DC's economy is heavily service-based. 
and we're, ha we're having growing examples uh, where service-based comp companies uh, are an increasingly great example of why employee ownership is actually a great pathway. And so I, I don't know that there's a, a, a right answer about like what the right mix is, but I think we have to embrace it as an opportunity that we're helping to facilitate uh, where people are. You know, so I, I, I would hate to be prescriptive in that way mm -hmm. to a certain industry or uh, uh, for certain folks. For, for us embracing it as an organization, it's, it's one of the tools in the toolkit, so to say, but not the only tool. Um, yeah, so that, that would be my response to mm -hmm. it. I also, Marjorie, I wonder if you could get in here, because I think one thing that sure. also might be useful is to talk about the breadth of forms of employee ownership yeah. Yeah. Uh, that can work at different differently maybe in different industries and different sizes of. Yeah, yeah. that's right. So you have worker co-ops, uh, which in the U.S. tend to be smaller, average about nine people, although uh, in Spain they're, they're quite large industrial companies. So mm -hmm. worker co-op is one share, one vote. Uh, every every employee is, has an equal, equal say and equal share. Then there are also what are called ESOPs, employee stock ownership plans. And this is, um, there are, are significant tax advantages for companies that uh, put employee ownership into an ESOP. And uh, these, these uh, can be quite large companies. For example, one that we've worked with is Recology in the Bay Area. It's $1.2 billion in revenue. It's 100% owned by employees. And uh, it's a place where garbage collectors can make $100,000. <laughs> I always like to say that. Because um, you know, if, if, you, if you're not extracting as much for capital, there's more, there's more to go around for workers. So uh, it can work at different scales. So, you, so the question that you ask is, um, what, what would be the right mix? I don't think we know yet, but I, I think that um, uh, when I say we, I mean we as a society don't know yet. But we certainly, as, as in the US, had a major commitment to broad-based home ownership in the post-war era. And we achieved 66%, I think about 60 uh, Probably not much more than that would be would be feasible. So could you get that high with employee ownership? Maybe you could. Uh, I, I don't know. I think it remains to be seen. But but Harold is is quite right that it's, it's not it's not right for every business. You don't want to put every business in this mold. One um, there are a lot of craft beer companies that are transitioning to employee ownership. A lot of consulting firms. I yep. think service firms where the main um, skills and knowledge uh, is the asset of the firm, and it would make sense that employees would own that asset because it basically is the knowledge in their head. Um, but um, there are some that I think would probably wouldn't work. Those who have very high capital needs, for example, one of the businesses that we've worked pretty closely with is Cape Air, and that's a, an airline on Cape Cod, and they're 30% employee owned. And the CEO says to me, we couldn't go much more than 30% because we, we need a lot of capital, and they need, they need to be able to sell equity uh, in order to get that kind of capital. So I think, uh, I think we're at a point as, as, as a community looking for those rules of thumb. Where does it work? Where does it not work? Right. But there are some major companies that through ESOPs and that kind of mm -hmm. do have structure. So um, we've also done panels where we've had I think Amstead Industries, which is a big multi-manufacturing firm. Um, Wawa is an employee-owned yeah, company. Right. Um, there are large companies that people know of. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so that helps to broaden your lens of how that might look. Mm -hmm. Yes, Grady. Uh, Grady Hedgespeth, the Consumer Bureau. Uh, I'm, I'm fascinated by this history. And if you don't know your history, you might actually repeat it. Mm -hmm. So what happened to this 1,500 cab Company. Yeah. Mm. And what does that say about the governmental structures or, or what might have 
contributed to them not being here anymore. Mm. Yeah, we're, we're, we're still exploring because uh, it's difficult to find history mm -hmm. uh, on what actually happened. And we're talking about uh, the 30s through the 60s, uh, where the ability to get that kind of information hasn't quite um, mm. materialized. And so a couple factors just in my own history and knowing how things have evolved here. When you think about the evolution of the taxi company mm -hmm. uh, and the medallion uh, system and those sort of things, there's been different factors introduced that we probably can pinpoint um, uh, from the 60s to now that had a uh, disrupting factor there. The important thing here is to mention that at that period as well, these business models were pursued because uh, quite frankly, African-American families were blocked out legally from pursuing different business opportunities. And so as we progressed as a society, it created more openness to be able to pursue outside of the traditional, uh, uh, those means that have been set up more broader opportunities, whether it was jobs or business creation. Like one of the things that we, we've been having a lot of internal discussions about as well is that even when you look at the notions of like redlining mm. that impacted housing, mm -hmm. the same thing happened with business ownership. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so people created businesses because they couldn't in many different ways. You know? And so as we progress again as a society and reduce those barriers, a lot of black-owned companies that were in certain neighborhoods and different areas uh, went away because there were greater opportunities. So I, 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 would, I would imagine that those are different factors uh, that, that were associated. Mm -hmm. But we're, we're, we're doing some focus to, to not only think through the ecosystem, but also think through how we can really elevate in a much more specific way the legacy of those companies. If I could just quickly add on the history piece, I think it is very significant. I mean, we... we our one Fairfax strategy is a very forward-focused strategy, but in order to not um, repeat the mistakes of the past, we have to look backwards and figure out right. why this came to be. I mean, we have, in our, in our um, process, are really trying to institutionalize um, the root cause analysis. But why? But why? But why? Mm -hmm. And so as we look to unearth this history, one of the things is the same thing. That part of history isn't well documented because generally speaking, the winners get to document the history, right? Mm -hmm. So whoever were the particular winners at any given time, they get to say what happened. And so it's really important that we capture this um, story. I was at a meeting um, yesterday with a local pastor and as I was waiting to meet with him, I had the opportunity to um, talk to his receptionist and she told me, you know, five minutes worth of valuable Fairfax housing land use policy mm -hmm. history mm -hmm. from her life experience mm -hmm. yeah. that really I can now sort of think about more broadly about what well, this happened to her family. What about families in this entire area? And so um, I think it's really important that we invest time and energy to better understand that history because, again, it provides us a real, uh, at least for the local government, it provides us real documentation of the evidence of government's role um, in producing what we see today. Um, but it also helps us to you know, better understand how we can stop producing harm. Mm -hmm. So, and and then we honor the the, the, the history of what has happened, right? Like we we've had people to uh, uh, survive and thrive and persevere under, in spite of. Yeah, yeah, in spite of, you know. And it's it's okay getting to that point of comfort again. Mm -hmm. And we're, it's our history. 
we have to embrace it mm -hmm. if we're going to develop the right solutions moving forward, mm -hmm. that we are intentional in talking about and understanding what has happened so we understand why we're here today. Mm -hmm. Great. And again, there's an asset focus to that. This is my big passion. Mm -hmm. um, because I think that while we focus on the gaps in our existing system, we also have to focus on the contributions in spite of, right. in, in spite of a structure in a system that was, um, in some cases, intentionally meant to separate people from opportunity. So as much as we want to better understand the gaps, we also have to understand the assets because I think that that teaches us that it's possible, right? right. So yeah. thank you. Thank you. We have a question here. Hello. Oh, hi. I'm Abby. I'm from the Department of Commerce, and I'm an intern. But I'm also a college student, so I haven't really started my career yet. Um, so I just wanted to know what I can do to kind of help build this democratic economy um, for equal economic opportunity as like a regular citizen. Well, that's a great that's a great question. Um, you know, I think uh, follow your heart to where your skills are a natural fit. Uh, I, I began as a writer and have, have moved into consulting and, and now some management. Um, but um, so what are the skills that you, that you want to bring? And then what, uh, develop those and find, find the place that uh, you have something to offer. It could be, it could be in government, mm -hmm. it could be at a CDFI, it can be inside a bank. You know, it could be inside a nonprofit. There's lots of places. But I think, you know, paying attention to kind of what lights you up and where you think you have something to add. And, and thank you for the question and yeah. good luck. Yeah. Great. Yeah. We need you. Uh, so I've got, I think we've got three minutes and I've seen, th uh. I see three questions. So I'm going to take the three questions and then give us a, a quick chance to answer them. So I'm going to start here. Hi. If you can do your question quickly, that'd be great too. Okay, great. Um, I'm Allison Powers from Capital Impact Partners. First of all, really quick, I wanted to say that there is a worker-owned franchise uh, starting in New York City, um, the Center for uh, Family Life. It's funded mm -hmm. by Robinhood, and they're doing home cleaning. Uh, they have about four or five right now. Mm -hmm. My question is, what can DC government do to encourage employee ownership? OK, great. Okay. There's a question right here. Actually, Renita. Oh, sorry. That's OK. Sorry, I was wondering um, how a democratic economy and some of these shifts that you've been describing will help might help navigate uh, technological and changes and automation and some inequities mm -hmm. that potentially transpire there. Great. And then I'm, last shot is to my esteemed colleague, Janet Topolsky. <laughs> I'll try to make this quick. I'm thinking about um, industrial commons, which is reviving sort of the textile industry in Western North Carolina through worker ownership, but also, and, and a network of small businesses that are reviving, as I said, textile manufacturing. But they're, they're also working together collectively mm. to go to zero waste, right? Mm -hmm. To have a closed system on the waste. Mm -hmm. And so my question to you has to do with, how are you thinking about these equity values in the development of the democratic economy in relation to other assets that are also important to equity? Because if you look at the effects of climate change, mm -hmm. they disproportionately affect people of color and low-income people mm -hmm. and people in, in poor communities. Mm -hmm. And so what about the practices of the companies? Right. Yeah. So who wants to take a shot? We got, we got 
one minute, okay, so I'll we're going to be fast. I'll just say real quickly, yes, uh, the whole question of sort of an ecological transition, there's, there's a lot of roles for ownership to play in that. It's not just employee ownership. It could be uh, you know, community ownership of land or, or municipal ownership of utilities. Mm -hmm. And I'll just I'll give a quick example. Right now in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in California, or maybe a week or two ago, if you had flown over California, you would have seen uh, lots of blackouts, where PG&E had, had blacked out its areas, you would have found uh, an area where the lights were on, and that is where um, it, they had a municipally owned utility, which was more responsible in the way it ran itself, because it was owned by the people of the community and not, not about extracting wealth. Yeah. So that's my answer. I'll toss to right. the others. DC so, government. Really quickly that's a good on one. DC government. Uh, yeah, so I think first, examining all the, the, the barrier points. One, the law has to contemplate first what employee ownership actually is uh, and work around cooperatives so that folks cannot run into any barriers uh, with creating a business. Second, uh, with procurement programs, coming back, that's a favorite topic for the day. Uh, thinking through set aside incentives that can go towards uh, companies that are employee owned. So a value point of the city, the mayor included it in her economic strategy, the first round. Um, and so I think building on uh, what and uh, the next set of solutions look like uh, are going to be critical. If I might, just to get in the last word, to address your issue about technological change, I think one of the things we see with employee ownership is when the employees are the owners, they may make different choices about yeah. whether and how they change jobs, invest in workers, and think about whether they do things like outsourcing. Um, and so I think that's one way to think about how it connects to some of these principles. It's great. Any, anyone else want to add one last word? On I, I just want to just bring up the sort of intersecting nature of sort of all the work. So again, the technological changes, the ecological impacts, we have to realize that, you know, these are not discrete yeah. efforts, right? right. They're, they're, it's intersecting. And so the same pipelines that we're building to achieve equity have to be the same pipelines that will help us to transition um, to a more technologically focused community that will have help us to transition um, to better understand sort of the, our impact on our um, environment and ecosystem. So we have to make sure that we're not building separate pipelines and strategies, but that we're doing them collectively. Fantastic. Perfect yeah. answer. I know. <laughs> right. All right. Good. Thank you. Great. remind you the book is available for sale um, and I think Marjorie will be around for a sure. little bit to sign books if you'd like um, but thanks again to a great panel I almost forgot to get up here because I'm like taking notes and trying to read things and everything this is a fabulous discussion thank fun. you so thank much you. Thank, you. thank you this was good thank you yeah oh that was fun that was good yes thank you